It's the Face of Chicago Business Podcast, introducing you to the stories behind the faces, focused on fixing today's problems with thoughtful leadership and purposeful living. Sit down with us as we get to know the individuals who make our city second to none. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce, and this is the Face of Chicago Business Podcast. Today I'm joined by Raleigh Wilkins, my Marine brother. Raleigh, thanks for being here. All right, thanks Tony, great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. Uh, quite the story, young man. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. You know, and you know, I guess our listeners will find out whether it's a great story or not. But nah, it is. It definitely you know, is. Everybody has a story to tell. You know, and uh, it's hard. Sometimes people like to judge a book by its cover. And you know, you think you know me when I meet you, and you, I think I know you. But reality is, you sit down, have a couple of drinks, or spend some time together, and you find out it's completely different. Completely different. Yeah, and yeah. I was very surprised. You know, when you t- a lot of what you share with me is, like I said, quite the story. And. It starts in Virginia for you, right? It's where you're from originally? Yeah. Yeah. Originally, I'm in a small town in between Goochland, what's called Goochland, Virginia, between uh, Richmond and Charlottesville and the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, so I lived oh, there until wow. I was eight. Yeah. And as a country boy, you know, grew up with dogs and horses. And uh, then uh, after parents split up, uh, I ended up going to Franklin, Virginia, which is a smaller town, paper mill town, right yeah. on the North Carolina border. Now, it sounds beautiful, but uh, it was kind of a, a little bit of a rough upbringing for you. Huh? I mean, not not to say that it was bad, but but you went through your challenges as a, as a young man, right? Oh, sure. You know, everybody has their challenges growing up, you know, and I don't know if I'm any more unique than anyone else in that. But, you know, it's typical, you know, in those days, you know, this was uh, in the days when divorce really wasn't still a taboo subject. And my parents got divorced and uh, my mom left and we went to Franklin to go live with my uh, grandmother oh, wow. and um, grandfather. And, uh, How old were you at that time? Uh, eight, eight years old, oh, eight, okay, nine so years old. Pretty young. Yeah, yeah pretty young. And, um, you know, it was, you know, I, in a lot of ways, you know, it was an easier life before then. You know, my father was an architect. You know, he was a, a bit of a drinker and, you know, it made it difficult. And my mom definitely made the right decision leaving. Um, but it was, you know, it was tough to go from like, you know, private school and things were pretty set up, it seemed, at least as a young mm-hmm. kid, to living with my grandmother and then my mother, who didn't have a college degree, trying to find work. I had an uncle in the small town who employed her for a while uh, is a person who decorated cakes at his Dairy Queen. Wow. And so we went from like, you know, where do we get two quarters to put together to, you know, go to the bowling alley or to go to the roller, roller skating rink. We didn't have a bowling alley. <laughs> we were too small, but it was like, you know, we oh, could, really? it, was a, small, it was a dollar huh? 25 for the early skate and two fifty for the later skate. And we mm. could never afford the two fifty. Wow. So, but you know, Definitely my mom, a big change, huh? yeah, but she was an amazing woman. She did the best she could. And I tell you what she did. She ended up in a credit union and, um, you know, she never made a lot of money, but we never wanted for, you know, the things that we needed in life. And she was an amazing cook. So, I mean, we worked, I was overweight for sure. Really? Oh my God. Can't yeah. imagine you at all. Being oh yeah. 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 It was a, it was a sight to see for a while. There are no pictures <laughs> for a reason. Yeah. For a reason. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, now talk to me a little bit about uh, your teenagers. I know that you had gone through a little bit of a, of a rough patch. Uh, yeah. You know, I think as you know, you go from the adolescence into teenager, it's a tough thing for anybody, you know, anybody that says their high school career was their best time that just don't know what they're talking about, you know? Um, I just, since I was a young kid, and I don't know if it was a divorce, who knows why these things happened, but it just felt like something wrong, something off. And I was always searching for an answer, but I didn't know what the problem was. And so it's really hard to find the answer to a problem if you don't know what the problem is that you're searching to answer for. For sure. And so I just had this vague sense that something was wrong all the time. And I started having, you know, behavior issues. I started like acting out, acting in, you know, I had a lot of things that were, you know, uh, you know, my, my mom did the best she could, but she's a single mother with two kids. And, and I just started to kind of come off the rails and, um, you know, they didn't know what to do with me. And so that started me into institutions, 
it started me ended up uh, living with different families and then going from family to family um you know and my you and you were part of the foster system, right? Yeah, in a different way. So, you know, it was, I was older. And so I had a doctor who actually introduced, so I lived with family friends for a while. And then I had a situation where I lived with um, a family that was a doctor referred family. And so, but I had to go to court. My mom gave up custody and, wow. you know, I was 16 for, uh, for this family to adopt me. Wow. And so I ended up being this, this foster court, court appointed guardianship. Yeah. Wow. What's going through your mind at that time? I mean, like. I know that, you know, living with both parents and for me, it was still rough, you know, to be a teenager. Uh, I can't even imagine having to go through that and, and figure life out. Yeah. Well, I don't know that you do figure it out. You know, you kind of, you go through the success of things when you're trying to figure out life without parental guidance. Yeah. Um, you know, I got really good at building an image, but I always had this internal conflict around, I hope no one finds out what's wrong with me. Of course, I didn't know what was wrong with me. So, but you I felt like something was wrong. Something with you. was wrong with me, yeah. and you know. But you know, going from different high schools, moving. You know, I'd live with one family for a while, then I live with another family. You know, and at one point, it's like you know, I'm getting this second job at 17. I left that family and moved in with a roommate, and you know, I'm working as a dishwasher to pay bills. Wow. Not and going to high school, riding my bicycle to high wow. school. And so, you know, and, and so it was a, it was a bit of a challenge, you know, trying to figure that out and, you know, wondering like, where is, you know, you have this sense of like, what, what happened? Where did it go wrong? And it must be my fault somehow. And, you know, it really went off the rails when I was 17. It was right before I moved out on my own. I got a call from a half sister and she said, um, dad's dead. And I hadn't talked to my dad in years. I had this strange relationship with him, like a lot of men do with their fathers. Of course. I was just like, you know what, what happened in the past happened in the past. You don't want anything to do with me. I don't want anything to do with you. But really secretly what I thought is if I can just get to a certain level in life, then I can come back and it'll be like, Hey dad, look, look at what I did. You know, we're you can child. fix things, right? Yeah. Fix things somehow. And, um, but I said, what happened? She said, he committed suicide. And I thought, and I, something in me broke in that moment. And it was like, why am I, that's the man that I admired for all of his faults and everything he had. And it's like, I kind of understood it, but it was also like, I kind of went off the deep end from there, you know, and I crawled into a lot of different behaviors that, you know, set me up in my life for a lot of, you know, things that I was going to have to reconcile for eventually. Wow. But it was, a, it was a tough go. And, um, at some point, you know, I rec you know, I got to go home. Um, you know, I had a period of time where I got to go and, you know, go to college lived back at home with mom for a couple of years and got into Old Dominion University, was there. Um, then I kind of went off the rails again and it just was a dark, dark place, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I was sitting there and one day I was going to flunk out of ODU. I didn't have any money. I didn't know where I was going to go. And you're still 17 at this point? Oh, no, no I'm older now. Okay, like, that, you well, know, 20-ish. Oh, 20-ish. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but Old Dominion University, it's a school, it's college. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. As a junior. And it, to that point, it's like my life was like I would build my life up and then just tear it down. I would build it up and tear it down and build it up and tear it down. And a lot of the times it was circumstances, things I couldn't do anything about. You don't have any money, you don't have any money. Mm -hmm. But there's other things that were just like when you grow up that way, you just get some weird behavior patterns. And I had some strange behavior patterns. And, you know, and so it was always this struggle of how can I look right while things inside aren't right. And so you, hourly you're trying to put on this appearance oh, at all sure. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did a decent job of that. Yeah. But, you know, the reality was like late at night, it's 3 a.m. and you wonder what's going on. Why do I keep doing these things? And it got to the place where it was such a dark place that I started to contemplate, you know, different ways out. Yeah. And I was like, and, and two of the ways that I thought was I'd always wanted to go in the military. I'd always wanted to be a Marine. 
um, since I was probably, I don't know, teenager. I have an uncle who was a Marine and so gotcha. he inspired yeah, me. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know if I was good enough was part of it. And then the other piece of it was I thought about going to the monastery and becoming a priest. No way. Well, my aunt, my grandmother, bless her heart, mama died. She would say, she said, son, you know, and I can't do her voice justice, <laughs> but she would say essentially like it was either the Marine Corps or the monastery. And I don't know whether the priest would have accepted you. Wow. <laughs> but, so what was it about the monastery that appealed to you? Um, it was, you know, they had a sense of purpose about their life. They had a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, those things always appealed to me. And they had some type of honor about them. You know, I mean, you can say what you want about, you know, but the people that dedicate their lives to a religion or to a service, whether it's a Buddhist monk or Catholic priest or whatever it is, or just somebody that does a lot of good, that appealed to me. I think when you go through the things you go through, me and my sister, I have a sister, you, you do one of two ways, and we both fell on the right side of that. You either become a deep, dark person who causes a lot of harm to others, or you are able to start seeing the beauty and be grateful for the things that you have. And, and But where did that come from? I mean, that's at a young age to even have those thoughts. I wasn't having those thoughts at all. I think, you know, it's we talked about this, you know, during our friendship a lot. And, you know, some of the things are that, you know, until you get to a place where you have no options, you don't realize where you're at. You have to be backed into a corner where you think there's no way out to realize that when you are backed in a corner, then every way is out. Yeah. There's only one way. Chesty Pullard surrounded. Great. We got them where we want them. Any direction we attack, we get one of those guys, right? And so it's the same kind of... Uh, I love that, by the way. Yeah. It's a, But it's the same kind of thing. Like when you get pushed down, that's when you find out the measure of a woman or the measure of a man because it's like, how do you respond? Absolutely. And some of that's training, but some of that is that inner voice, that deep, still voice within us that says, not yet. And we all have that. Yeah. I'm not done yet. When I'm ready to quit and everything enters, there's that little voice that's whispering. It's not a big voice. And it's like, you can do this. One more. One more. And we can all connect to that. But, you know, the people, to the deeper you get pushed to it, I have this philosophy that the deeper the pain, the greater the joy. The more spectrum that you've experienced, yep. the more that you can communicate and the more people you can reach. And appreciate too. I mean, the more you appreciate simple yeah. things. Now, in terms of the mentality to get out of there, I mean, it's easy to say you're backed in a corner and, yeah. you know, but when, when the light isn't clear, when, you know, the, the path isn't lit for you, yeah. um, how do you make that first move? How, how, how do you step outside of that and, and, and just commit to something? Yeah. Well, it seems like sometimes, you know, in life, when you get pushed against that wall, there's opportunities and whether you can see them or not, they're there. Sometimes it's in the uh, kindness of a stranger. Sometimes it's some, somebody just simple human kindness can move things that force can't. And so, but it's that idea that like, you know, I don't think I have anything within me that other people don't have within them. I think everybody has that power within them. Everyone has that sense of the divine, that sense of the guidance and sense of the peace that continues to drive us. So how do you get in touch with that? Some people seem to be naturally in touch with it. Other ones, when they experience life's hardships, get pushed into it and they discover it. And I discovered it. And it was in those moments that I would have those moments where I was like, I'm not alone. And I didn't even know I was praying, but what I was doing was I just talked to the air. I didn't know I was praying. Like, I don't know if you're there right now, but I don't know how to keep going here. If there's anything that can help me, let's do this. So as, as, you're, as you're speaking, you know, kind of into the air, um, does I mean does you just continue that? Do you uh, do you nurture that relationship? How did you evolve in in that communication with God? Yeah, well, it seems like that uh, life has a way of dealing lessons and cards, and when they happen, you get a chance to have that communication. Yeah. And again, there seems to be this like you know deep down within every man, woman, and child is this fundamental idea of something. And when you don't have that, that's when the desperation happens. That's when we're just animals. 
And so, you know, again, this is in hindsight. In the moment, I'm not like, oh, it's time to go talk to the air. It was like this was in desperation. And what would happen is I would get a sense of peace or I would sleep through the night. Just from that. Just, but it wasn't instant. It wasn't like you get from taking a couple shots of whiskey. Sure. It was more like something so subtle you could miss it. But it was just enough. That's what I mean. It's the hint of kindness from a stranger. It's the little pat on the back that you don't know who's going through what, and it makes the difference. And there were, I had angels in my life, and my entire life, from really from the time that I got out of the Marine Corps until today, has been how do I repay that kindness? How do I make room for one more? You know, as long as... When you find out during the course of this thing that if I'm trying to get something out of life, chances are if you have enough discipline, drive, and then you get some lucky breaks, you're going to get it. But then what? You don't really, you never have enough. You, one of the, you know the poorest people I've ever met in my life? Somebody with $10 million. Wow. Because the person with $30 million drives them nuts. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. But you take somebody that's grateful, that person that has it cultivates an attitude of gratitude. Gratitude's not a feeling. That's thankfulness. Gratitude is an action. So what am I doing to help you get out of where you're at? Because I was there and I know how to take you to where is something different. That's what people did for me. They didn't coddle me. They didn't, just like the Marine Corps, they didn't coddle you. They didn't say, explain things to you. They didn't, they said, but you test this and then you're going to have this experience. And I started to see people that were living differently than the way I felt. And I was curious about that. How are you doing that? What's different? And that's what you start to see is that courage is the absence of fear. Courage is what you do when you're faced with fear. Absolutely. How do you respond? Some of that's training, but some of that I think is what separates us from animals. There's this something different inside humankind that pushes us forward. Wow. I mean, I, you gave me chills just uh, the way you eloquently put it, but the, the idea of a whisper that we you know, often don't hear, right? That uh, it can be missed. And I yeah. think that's so important um, that, that we stick with it, right? Mm-hmm. For many of us, I think we quit on that. Yeah. Uh, we don't hear it. It's not super loud and we ask why and... Uh, we miss those things, you know, yeah. we miss those things. Um, no, it's, it's amazing. So, so at this point you're about 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you decide monastery isn't for you. Right. <laughs> what did you decide to do? Well, so I went in the Marine Corps, yeah. right? So I went to see a recruiter and he gives you the tiles and puts them down there and you know, there's 12 tiles or whatever there are and you're supposed to pick the ones that appeal to you. And I think it's multiple choice, but of course it's any tile. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right? I'm like honor, courage, come in. They're like, this is what we want. So a great sales pitch, you know, in the Marine Corps. And, um, but introduction they, to sales. Right yeah. There, and right? basically I went for a run. I thought I was going to join the army actually, cause they're going to give me money for college. Yeah. And, uh, the guy didn't show up for my run, a Marine drill instructor, drill instructor, went drill instructor recruiter, but yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. a gunnery sergeant or something. Recruiting did was like, took me for a run and then we're talking and I was like, so what do you guys have to offer? He's like, we have the GI bill. I was like, well, that's it. He's like, look, if you don't want to be a Marine, you shouldn't be in the Marines. It's like, this isn't like, <laughs> And he goes to the pitch. You know the pitch. Yeah, that's what I mean. But then you go to Paris Island and you realize, oh, wow, now I have, a, like you think, I have, oh, I, wow, I messed this up. Like I could have, I did not know. I thought this was going to be like the movies. And it's like, first thing you do is cut your hair, shave your head. Yeah. You're still in civilian clothes. It yeah. is like breaking down every piece of that image that I'd spent a lifetime creating. And it's like, and all of a sudden I was exposed. You, you can't get any more the same as everybody in boot camp. Same haircut, same uniform, same food, same barracks, same bed. There's nothing special about anybody. And yet in that, there was a solace for me. Because for one of the first times, there was no image to hide behind. And they gave me those big glasses, you know. Oh, yeah. And it's like, so I didn't even have any looks. I had nothing at this point, you know. And, and so it's like. The birth I had, control glasses. That's what they called them. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> want to say it on your podcast. But, uh, but it was just a, you know, it was just everybody's equal. But how can I look like you and everything is the same and yet I still feel so different than you? Yeah. 
and we're still comparing, comparing despair. Yeah, right? that's so true. And but you're going through boot camp, and it's terrifying. And at some point, you start thinking, "Why did I do this? Oh, Why did yeah. I do? I really care about this?" You know, there's so many almost. Marines. Did you have a moment in there, or was it the whole I time? I did. No, I had a moment. I was. It actually, wasn't running in front of the mirror, was it? Because <laughs> that was for me. I ran past the mirror and I looked at myself and go, what did I get myself oh. into? No, it was, well, there was two things. One, I had a guy on Firewatch, which is ridiculous duty. They make you pull when you're yeah, in boot camp. Yeah. Like uh, there was a guy that was trying to kill himself oh, with a uh, with a with a safety razor, like a the razor, you know, cut your, <laughs> you know, you do your shaving with. And I'm like, are you kidding me, man? I like, I got to beat on the drill instructor's door and get this. You're not even going to. But we did have a guy jump off the third story at one Jeez. of the. So we had some stuff going on, nice. and it was just I was getting beaten up all the time. And I was actually the scribe. So I was like a scribble, so I was the number two yeah, scribe. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, anyway, it's Marine Corps stuff. But, um, you know, at some point I went for a run. And I was a pretty decent runner, you know. Uh, I wasn't lightning fast, but, I, you know, I was resilient. And at one point I was out there, and it was uh, these Marines were in front of me. They wouldn't get out of the way. And I was just kind of feeling like, why am I even doing this? Like, we're on one of those marches. You know how long it is you're running. I mean, mm-hmm. and um, you're just going until they tell you to stop. And, but I thought I saw my uncle's car drive on base, which it didn't. I mean, it's Paris Island. There's no way. It's just a delusion. It's probably like getting heat stroke. For sure. But it reminded me there was a life outside of drill instructors and everything that's going on, you know? And so I'm going on this run, and there was just this little spark that was like, wait a minute. You're never going to run fast enough for the drill instructors. You are never going to beat them, you know, at their own game. But you know what? You're not running as fast as you can right now, are you, Wilkins? And I'm like, hmm. I'm hearing this in my head, and I'm like, no. And it's like, this is insane, but it's happening inside me. And I was like, you know what? They can't break me if I push myself beyond what they want to break me to. So I'm going to set my own standards. Yeah. And I just took off running. And these two Marines were in the way. They wouldn't get out of there. It was like one of those narrow paths in like, you know, Paris Island. And I was like, gangway recruit, you know, because you're third <laughs> person. And they wouldn't. So I was like, I just burst through them, knocked them sprawling, right? Oh, wow. And I was like, and I always felt kind of bad about it, but not really, because at that point, yeah. you're getting sorry, not to sorry. fight. Yeah, yeah, sorry, not sorry. And, um, but then I get this, uh, this guy jogs up beside me. I think he's a recruit. He's got the same uniform on, you know. And he goes, I just saw what you did back there. And I'm like, whatever you know that's what you're thinking you know and we're going a pretty good clip and he goes i'm the commanding officer marine corps recruit depot and blah 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 and Holy you get crap. your drill instructor and come see me we don't do that here you're done and i'm just like oh my god like all my fears are like oh really yeah everything. i thought you were gonna tell me the opposite oh no like, all my fears were like you know this guy's i'm getting kicked out like i got no i got nowhere to go yeah, yeah, from yeah. you know from uh well i think we said that another time but it was you know that scene and um, oh, officer and a gentleman. Officer and a gentleman. And yeah, Richard yeah. Gears like getting hosed down by the drill instructor, yeah, yeah. and he's like it breaking. He's like, I got nowhere to go. That's what I felt like. I'm like, no, this guy's gonna rip this away from me. Jeez. This one thing. Yeah, yeah. And so we go see the drill instructors, um, and we're in cool down circle. And I'm like, they're not gonna know who I am. And he locks eyes. And I'm like, oh, he got me. And so, uh, so I go over to my drill instructor, sir, recruit, request mission sixteen drill instructor, sir. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like, what do you want, puke? And I'm like, oh, this recruit. And he's like, just spit it out. And so I tell him what I did. And then the commanding officer's over there, and he's chewing out my drill instructor. I'm like, I'm going to get killed. This could be quarter deck. I'm going to be like an you know, yeah, yeah. IPT or whatever, you know. And you know, next thing you know, then he pulls me aside, the drill instructor, and he gets in my face. He pulls me, and he asks me what happened. It's exactly what happened. And I said, yes, sir. That's exactly what happened. And he pulls me closer, and he says, I just took a huge ass chewing from this commanding officer. And he said, you know what? I'll take one for that every day. You Good. keep that's, that that's, going. That's awesome. And it was like you couldn't have held me back if there had been like a parade of tigers between me and the next <laughs> obstacle course, right? I was in. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like yeah. you don't know the impact. And that was our heavy. That was the guy that's yeah. going to kill you. 
it was a moment plan. in time where if he had taken that differently, you'd have a different talker today. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And there's so many of those moments. So when defining I say like, moments, yeah. yeah, the defining moments, so you don't even know our defining yep. moments. Yep. They're in hindsight. Yep. But, you know, as I went in and things like, and you know, I had other defining moments, but those are moments that you remember because it's like, again, you can either go to the dark side, pick up the red lightsaber, and now you're <laughs> out there, you know, trying to kill Jedis, or you have these people that give you this option to do something different. And I had that option. And, you know, and th that went back in the memory bank. Like, okay, goes into the bank, goes into the bank, goes into the bank. So that later, when I got out of the Marine Corps and I started doing these things, it's like, how do I start to give back? In a different way. How yeah, do I yeah. rub out the record for the harm that I caused before I went in in my life to this point? What a great outlook, man, honestly. That's <laughs> seriously a very, very amazing outlook that I, I wish more people had. But now tell me, so you got out of the Marine Corps. Yeah. You go back to Virginia, right? Yep, got out of the Marine Corps, went back to Virginia. So, you know, and, and the Marine Corps is an interesting time, too. I don't know if you want to touch on that at all, but it was yeah. a... Yeah, know, I mean, no, I would, I would love to. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, but, you know, it was just one of those things. I was a duck in water when I got into the Fleet Marine Force. You know, I loved it. Um, you know, I'd gone in thinking I was going to the legal corps, so I ended up going in and being an 0121 admin guy, and I'm like, what is this? And they're like, well, you can write. And you can just... So I ended up lat moving and becoming a combat journalist. But I was always, like, it was, you give me a, poly, you give me a process, a procedure, and a set of guidelines, I will excel. I'm just, I'll crush it. So I, went, I started going for meritorious promotions. I got meritorious corporal. I ended up going up for boards. Where were you during this time? Uh, Okinawa, Japan. Okay. You know, so I'm running all the time, PT, you know. I went up for, they put me up for Marine of the Quarter. I won Marine of the Quarter twice. Went up for Marine of the Year for first Marine Air Wing. Came in second to some guy. And then, you know, and then Fifth Force Recon Doc came in. And the NDOC is a big deal. That's the Raider, Raider Battalion now. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was like, I was like, fine, I'll do it, maybe, whatever. And I go there, and, like, I made it pretty far. You know, it was like the very end of the NDOC phase, and I was like, I just, my body gave out. Like, you fall two car lengths behind, and I just wasn't physically conditioned. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was like, that's why I joined the Marine Corps, those guys. That's, and so I went back to my command, talked to my commanding officer, and he said, okay, yeah, we can set you up. You can do another. You got good reviews during your in-doc review or whatever. You know, they give you the review afterwards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He says, if you want to do that, fine. He says, he says, but I got a better program for you called Marine Commissioning Program. MESEP, right? MESEP. Yeah. And he said, you know, and I was like, wow, this is my dream. Like, you know, from a little, it's like, wow, the validation, everything. And again, it was like one of those moments. You get to be Richard Gere. I get to be all the things, right? <laughs> yeah. because, but it's, it's, again, it was like, I didn't know I had it in me because my whole life there's been this voice that says, you're not good enough, man. Somebody, you, you, you don't deserve this. You're just, your parents didn't even want you. Yeah. So, you know, again, it wasn't like a cognizant thought. But at some point, you know, I'm sitting there and so I, they give you this paperwork, boom, you know, and I look at this thing and I go, if I fill this out, I'm getting kicked out of the Marine Corps. It is like top secret clearance stuff because they're going to make you not. And it should be, right? Yeah, I'm not yeah. against the Marine Corps. It's exactly what it should be. You know, but, you know, I had a friend that actually filled that paperwork out. He went through embassy school duty. His name's Corey Eastep. Amazing guy. But he went through embassy school and, you know, he actually ended up getting some discrepancies, we'll say, on his paperwork. They threw, got rid of him. But he went back to school and he got his degree in architecture. And then now, you know what he does now? He builds embassies. That's what so, irony. And his joke is they wouldn't let me guard him. Now I build him. So life has this way of giving you your dreams back in a way or another if you keep moving and keep paddling, right? But for me, it was like another thing. It was another like brick in the wall, Pink Floyd reference. Like another, like here it is, like your past is coming back to haunt you again. You can't over, and it wasn't like I did anything terrible. It was just, you know, kid stuff. But it's enough stuff that it put me in fear and it was like, okay, I don't, I can't do, I wanted to do 20 years. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to do recon battalion. I wanted to go to officer candidate school. I went, and I felt like I had the ability to do it, 
But again, it was life saying, not now. <laughs> this isn't it. And so I made a decision to get out after six years, went out, and I got out at headquarters Marine Corps in Quantico. Oh, that's so, where your last duty station was? Yeah, I was at I&I duty. So I always I wanted to go to Quantico. Never, never got a chance to go. It was nice. You know, it was great to, it's a great place to be a Marine. It's even better when I was at I&I duty in Richmond, Virginia, because there's no Marines. That's the yeah, best yeah, place that, to that's be the best, yeah. yeah. And so, but, the, you know, at that place, you know, I started hitting some emotional bottoms again. Really? Because I knew I was going to get out. And, you know, I liked it. You know, it was like my life was just as I would build my life up and then I would just somehow tear it apart. Yeah. And I'd build it up. And with a life or circumstances like that resiliency, my friends today are like, well, you're one of the most resilient people we know. And I'm like, I'd rather be one of the wealthiest people, you know, like resiliency is like a left handed way of saying, like, you get knocked down a lot. Yeah. But I mean, like you said before, you know, that that uh, t- the, the saddest people, you know, or, or the poorest people, you know, are the, the 10 million dollar yeah. earners kind of thing. So yeah, that's right. They got different value propositions in their lives. And but, you know, yes, I got out. Yeah. And I spent some time, you know, and uh, it was like, what am I going to do next? And I didn't know. I knew I was going to go to the Marine Corps, and I thought, you know, I want to go in the business world. But I had no college degree. I had three years of college, but no degree. You know, um, you know, I had a world that didn't know what to do with a Marine with that kind of drive and ambition and things I'd done. Yeah. Um, they don't know. They weren't there to have all the transition programs they have now. You got like two days, literally, of a TAPS class, and you're out. Fourteen weeks to become a Marine, two days to become a civilian. And so it was like, okay, so I'm back in a world that I don't know what to do with. I don't know where to put my hands anymore. Again, I'm back to being that 15-year-old kid. I don't even know how to talk at this point. Yeah, I don't I mean, know how to yeah. talk. I had a different language, right? Yeah. And, and it was like there was no – so, you know, the idea was I ended up bouncing around. I had a personal training company I started. didn't really go anywhere. I, you know, had a couple of odd jobs, and then I ended up getting a job at Phillips, uh, this fil- company in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, publishing, and I ended up working for the senior VP of operations. He hired me as an executive assistant. And, the, you know, the executive assistant is generally career-level administrative role for people that are, like, pretty later in life. Yeah. And here's this 26-year-old Marine, like, <laughs> why'd you hire this guy? And it was, in some ways, really disruptive to the company, but it was also, it was allowed me in a boardroom. And I'd never been in a boardroom in my life. And I'm listening to smart people with really impressive degrees and credentials debating business. And I realized I have a mind for business. And I learned some of that when I was a little kid, listening to my uncle talk about business around the table. But I'd always been a reader, voracious, even today. I mean, I read a ton of books. I'm always researching. More like, I'm much more Matt Damon, you know, Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> than like, you know, the guy who went to Harvard. For sure, you know? for sure. And both of them have benefits, right? But point is that, like, you know, it was like, where am I going to go in the business world? And second one is an executive assistant. And I ended up, I decided, I was like, I don't know anything about business. And I asked my boss, I said, can I go interview all the VPs in the company? He'd go, what do you want to do that for? I just want to know how they got where they are. Oh, so you did that. You took yeah. that upon yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, so I called these guys up, sent them emails, you know. Yeah. And I said, hey, you know, I, you know, I work for Roger. I'm his executive assistant. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to get five minutes of your time and just ask you how you got to become a vice president. I don't even know what that's about. Wow. And everybody gave me the time. Some people gave me five minutes and they're like, get out of here, kid. Some of the people gave me a lot of time. And what I realized is that of all the positions in business that you can do, and I love marketing. I love Dummer's data. I, you know, there was, so I got in the marketing department for a while there. I did some writing, which I was a comic journalist. I liked writing. Um, but, you know, what I really found was that the aristocrat of the working class are salespeople. Absolutely. You know, I had sold vacuums door to door when I was on active duty in Alexandria, Virginia, and all that area. And that is, you think, oh, it's like swindling people. Well, it actually wasn't. It was the best sales training I ever had because you're in somebody's home with their money convincing them to give you $2,000 or something they normally spend $200 on yeah. in a two-hour presentation in front of the husband and the wife or the partners, and they're going to make a decision today. And they have five days to cancel the order afterwards. 
So it's not like if they felt like you swindled them, they could just say, give me my money back. Absolutely. You had to. So you had to me, believe in it too. We had to, and I still do. I have a Caribbean home. Yeah, yeah. So the, you know, the idea is that, you know, but it taught me things that I didn't know I was being taught, just like the Marine Corps, just like foster care, just like I didn't know I was being taught for where I'm at in my life right yes. now, then. And people that are going through a tough time, you don't know what God's plan is for you. It's like Steve Jobs said, right? You can't connect the dots looking forward. That's true. You yeah. can't. You know, maybe some people can. Magicians. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I can't. I don't believe in destiny. That's a crazy thing, right? Yeah. I think I think you can't have free will and destiny at the same time. Sure. How can there be a destiny where everything's already predetermined? And what difference does it make what I do? Sure. No. There is no destiny. There's only now. What am I willing to do now? And we always have a choice. Even if we don't have a choice of the circumstance, we have a choice of how we react to the circumstance. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think I think I mean, I believe in destiny only in the sense that the circumstances are what they are, mm-hmm. but we have a choice, like you said. I mean, yeah. I, I, I absolutely believe that, and, and, and that can change for us. You know, the circumstances can yeah. change for us. And sometimes it's a break, but it's what do we do with that break? Like, yeah. You know, we all have million-dollar ideas. We all have breaks. We all have angels in our lives. But am I, am I head down, self-centered, thinking about myself in the moment that it happens? Or am I awake, and am I paying attention to the moment that that occurs? Yeah. You know, most people's lives hang in seconds and inches, Seconds and inches between one decision, turn left, turn right, duck, don't duck, take that call, don't take that call, do one more sales call, whatever it is. We don't know what that one call is going to be. And I've had so many of those defining moments. But when I got out of the Marine Corps, I didn't know what was in store for me. And I found out that sales is the aristocrat of the working class. It's your entry point into the business world for people that don't have a business degree. Because you can't learn to fight by reading a book. You can't become a Marine while watching movies. You have to go through a transformative process. You work for the Army, you know, you serve in the Navy, you join the Air Force, and you become a Marine. Absolutely. 14 weeks. So how do you become a salesperson? You have to actually do it. And I went out there and I did it, and I started doing B2B sales, and, you know, and I failed miserably because I didn't know anything about it because you're going to suck at it because you don't know how to do it. That's part of not knowing how to do something. But eventually you figure it out. And, again, people taught me, and I learned it. And, you know, I went from, you know, I knew that I would never go hungry again because sales is like sales in an uh, in the business community is like the Marine Corps raiders are in the special forces community. It is, they, it is what you do. It is a specialized unit that has a certain amount of training, not on what do I do, how to react to outside circumstances, Mm -hmm. OODA loops, right? Things that we learn, right? Matt T, all these things that you learn, they, they weren't taught like, what do I do when they tell me, Oh, you're a Marine. You're an infantry guy, so or you're a red patch guy. So it's like, hey, here's the thing: you got to guard this beach, and you got two rolls of bailing wire, three baseball bats, two M16s, four people, and three thimbles. And you go, I got an extra thimble and a baseball bat. We can play a game of ball. You figure it out. It's Absolutely. mosaic thinking. That's what it takes to be successful in the business world in any kind of revenue generating role. I didn't know I'd been conditioned for that since I was eight years old. Yeah, but most people that had that background I had never got the exposure that I did to those things. And once I figured that out, my life for a while was about how much money can Raleigh make because I started making a lot of money and spending a lot of money. Sure. <laughs> my uncle's, Uncle Mitch always says, not how much you make, it's how much you keep, son. <laughs> I'm still learning that one. But it's, you know, the idea was I learned how to make money. I learned how to develop relationships. And I went from the worst performing rep in the team in America in T-Mobile to the number four rep within a year out of oh, 450 amazing. reps. And they put me in sales management, the sales director. It's not a Raleigh story. It's just... The idea is like everywhere I went, I failed, I learned, and then I taught. Trial by fire. But when I started really getting life, and I started to get this passion for life, was when I realized it's not about how much I get. It's about how much can I help you get. Mm -hmm. See, if I'm lonely, 
there's not enough people in the world that can tell me that I'm okay for me to feel okay. Yeah. But if I'm lonely and I make one person feel like they're okay, I instantly feel okay. If I'm not included and I feel like I want to join the cool kids, the longer I try to sit at the cool kids table, the more alienated I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah. I can only become a number two. But I can go find the kids that no one wants to be with. And then I can make them feel included. And then all of a sudden, I'm never alone. And that's what you do now. I mean, that's, that's what, what you're doing now. with Sales Platoon, right? Yeah, it's what I do now. So it's, you know, the idea was like, as I was in business, I knew that my, there's a lot of reasons that a business fails. But once you have an established product line, the reason that most companies fail is they don't have fully ramped sales reps in place. There's a huge cost. You have to recruit, you have to onboard, and you have to train. But sales is very much a meritocracy and an aristocratic, like I said, it was an aristocratic mm -hmm. of the working class. And just like the Marines, there's no professional class of people that train Marines. We don't hire professional contractors. Marines go through boot camp, go out and fleet for reinforce, and then we pull them back in to be drill instructors. But before they become drill instructors, we take them to drill instructor school. Yep. When you're a sales rep, you become a sales manager. No one actually ever teaches you how to be a sales manager. It's like mm -hmm. one day you're a rep, next day you're a manager. That's so true. But the main part of your job, if and you're your a job manager, is completely different. Your job completely different. And the main one of the main part of your jobs is developing talent. And no one teaches you how to develop talent. I know how to do it. I don't know how to teach it. I know how to be a recruit. I know how to be a marine. But learning how to teach people how to be a marine is a different thing. Now that's what, and that's what you've been doing here since you got to Chicago, pretty much, right? Well, no. When I got to Chicago, I came here corporate executive board, um, you know, and I had a couple of more senior jobs. I worked my director, and then a senior director role. Then I worked at a company Elsevier. Um, and then I worked, um, and then I ended up as SVP of sales at New Horizons. And this is all within a, about a 10 nine year years. Span. Oh, yeah, nine 10 years. Yeah, 10 year span, yeah. And so, was, yeah, was, I moved here in 2009. In 2017, I started my company. Oh, wow. And originally, the company was around the idea of how do I help empower sales leaders? Because I know how lonely that is. If you're VP of sales or CRO or C CSO, chief sales officer, there's no one for you to complain to. But it's even lonelier a step below that. Because there are some companies that do a really good job for VPs of sales, like Sales Assembly Group in Chicago. They do a lot of good work. They try to help, you know, connect senior leaders so they have a forum to talk. But you, they don't have a place for sales managers to go. Who are you going to go complain to? you got 10 people report in you. And, and, and what are the things, three things they have to do? If they recruit, they have to train, they have to, uh, they, and then they have to onboard. Three things they don't know how to do. So companies throw money at sales training. They throw money at sales recruiting. They throw money at sales onboarding. But then you have people training people how to sell who never sold. I think you might also say throwing away money, not just throwing You money. could say <laughs> that. Yeah. Well, it, look, sales training is great. It's like linguistics training, though. So like if we speak English right now and we have somebody come in and starts to teach us to speak French, I might speak it as long as the instructor is there. But as soon as they're gone, I'm going to speak English again. Yep. And if I speak a certain sales language and sales training comes in, unless it's deeply embedded in the culture, it's just going to become a passing fad. It's an interesting idea. Sales onboarding is great, but the problem is, again, sales managers, when they have open headcount, they have to go sell. So what do they do? They then don't have time to really spend one-on-one, -on -one, and they don't really know how to train somebody. Coaching is not about one-on-one -on -one sessions. There's a ton of stuff out there about coaching. It isn't really coaching. Coaching is like, how do you shoot an M16 A2 surface rifle from 500 yards and hit a three-inch grouping from 500 yards? Yep. That's coaching, not like Oh, hey, how do you feel today? I'm glad you're on the range. Me too. Great. Oh, that's what, that's not coaching. No. And so what I thought is like, look, if the problem is access to talent, if the challenge then is also, yeah, and the challenge is also how do we get high quality candidates that have been certified pre-onboarded, then how do I do that? And so I thought, I was in the military. I made the transition. I worked my way up. I know how to, and so again, in sales, what I learned is when I start, big piece for me was when I started training people how to become salespeople. Once I knew how to do that, and I celebrated their success, 
I took a lot of pride in the fact that when reps on my team went on a plan, I kept track at one point over 80% of reps that went on plans came off them and went on to be highly successful. I learned how to teach and coach because I was coaching and teaching people that my number depended on. It wasn't like I was some consultant. So when I started this company, Sales Platoon, which was about a year ago, it really went live. Three years ago, the idea, and then a year and a half, I'd say two years ago. Okay, But the idea was the largest graduating university in the world is the United States military. 230 to 280,000 people come off active duty every year. 93% don't have college degrees, like me. Mm-hmm. 53% like me. are under the age of 25. Of those ones that do leave active duty, 75% don't have jobs. And that becomes a crisis because these aren't people that went to West Point or weren't Army Rangers. These are enlisted Marines. These are enlisted Air Force. It's a girl who lived in somebody who lived in Gary, Indiana, and she was a canine handler, you know, in the Air Force, and she did EOD, like kind of like Megan Levy did in the Marine Corps, right? And she comes back to a small town. What's she going to do? She doesn't know anything about the business world, but she could because that mosaic thinking. Remember the analogy of the baseball bats? Like they understand more about business than they know. But they need a course. They, they need more than a course. They need an indoctrinization. They need a platoon. So the idea was they have a program called SkillBridge. And what I did is work with DOD Hiring Our Heroes Partners. And I have access to active duty before they leave active duty up to six months. And then what I do is put them in an apprenticeship program for 14 weeks, Marine Corps, right? They go through a four-phase process where we select them. I train them. I onboard them. They teach see, do mentality, then I curate them inside sales platoon for 10 weeks where they're making calls and learning sales, and then I put them in apprenticeships with, co- with different companies. So companies that usually can only hire during times when colleges graduate, military graduates all year round. Mm-hmm. And they can then take these people and then put them into roles year round into internships and apprenticeships where they get a try before you buy, and then it helps them because they get faster ramp times. And they're already trained. I took them through the same training that I used for my reps when I was a senior VP of sales, sales director, and the rest. But they're actually working for my company for 10 weeks doing calls into companies that have open sales positions. So my job is to get them ready to sell. So by the time they get to somebody's company, they're already ready to be onboarded. And you developed this, right? Yeah, I developed the whole thing. It's amazing. So it's a certified pre-onboarded sales training for these guys. But, you know, and I don't worry about somebody replicating it because you would have to have been me. Yeah. You'd have to have been an infantry, you know, not infantry. You would have to have been a U.S. Marine who knows what that's like to make the transition. You would have to know how to do sales mm-hmm. training. You would have to do it. Then you'd have to know how to and place And the life them. experience. I mean, and the life experience. And so my job is not like, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's money to be made in this. I mean, it's a glorified human capital play. But the reality is, it's, the punchline is, these people that you're going to hire, they just happen to be U.S. military veterans yeah. with all the discipline, the drive, the determination, the resiliency. But they've already been vetted in sales because you can't take a senior in high school that's good in chemistry and move them to Prague and expect right. them to succeed. You can't take a U.S. Marine or a Coast Guard or an Air Force or an Airman or anybody and put them into business world expecting them to succeed because they don't speak the language and the culture. Now, is that true because... I mean, you're putting, it's not uh, industry specific, right? No, it's uh, not industry specific. So, I mean, you're but tra- it is you're B2B sales. sales. Yeah, What's right. B2B salespeople? Because that's what I know. Sure. I did B2C, but it's really B2B. Gotcha. And they need to understand how, like, think about it if you're a sales manager, like, what do you have to teach them? Like, even if they have a sales degree, that's like you have a boxing degree. It doesn't mean anything. What have you done right. in the ring? So they want somebody that has a year of experience. And, and you're giving they, them that. Yeah. And they need the apprenticeship program. So we're going through the Department of Labor's apprenticeship program approval process as well so that we can make this a true apprenticeship. So who should be reaching out to you? Uh, it really, VPs of sales, CEOs, sales managers um, who have that open headcount and need to get access to high-quality talent. 
and then also see the benefit of bringing in the U.S. military, but they don't know how to make that transition. No, I think it's an incredible program, honestly. And yeah. I've had a chance to, to look at it, and we've had several conversations about it. But, yeah. you know, I'm excited. And, and if yeah. you guys are out there watching, um, definitely contact Raleigh, not just because he's a Marine, but also a <laughs> yeah. smart guy uh, and really knows his stuff when it comes to, to sales. So, you know, anything we can do to help uh, from that perspective. Uh, but I just want to thank you for, for, for joining us here, you know, and sharing your story, man. I mean, you know, I know we yeah, got a little yeah. bit of sales platoon stuff, but, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you have such an incredible story. And I think for everything you shared, I, I have so much to learn from you because I know many people out there watching and everything that we've gone through, not even just as a nation, but as, as, as humanity, right, yeah. uh, in the last you know, months and, and in this well, year. The, the whole point of this is like, look, it's not about, you know, sales platoon is an avenue to help people transform their lives. But it gives them a paycheck. It gives people that didn't have hope, hope. It's the, it's the only thing in the world. It's the only job in the world you're expected to fill 90% of the time when we promote you, sales. Yeah. Yeah. And people that have, that life has given up on, I don't want to give up on them. Like, yeah. they didn't give up on me. So let's give them the opportunity. But beyond that, there's a it's a real dollars and cents proposition for companies. No, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I, yeah. I know the numbers are there, and yeah. you know, and, and it makes sense. But but obviously, people have to see it for themselves. And so I encourage you as you're watching, uh, visit mysalesplatoon.com. That's the website, yeah, right? mysalesplatoon.com. Yeah. yeah, no, it's incredible. So again, just thank you so much, Riley. I really appreciate you. Look forward to continuing the conversation more so uh, you know, when it comes to sales and having those conversations. I think it's, it's truly important and it's uh, extremely important now where people are really having to reinvent themselves. Yeah. Right? And so, uh, yeah, again, just thank you so much and look forward to seeing you again. Okay, sounds good. Semper Fi. Rah. Thank you.